All right, and away we go. Here we are with episode 12 of the Principles of Performance podcast. A few different things this week. One is my partner in crime, Mike Perry, is away on a much-needed vacation with the family, so I am flying solo. Um, and so I'm going to use the opportunity to geek out on one of my favorite things in talking baseball, and I got a perfect guy to do it with. Um, joined by Dr. Ryan McFurney. Uh, he is uh, a doctor of physical therapy, from uh, graduated from Stockton University. He's a, he's a fellow Jersey guy, but he's down in South Jersey. He um, has 13 years experience practicing orthopedic and sports physical therapy with an emphasis on rehab and training with baseball players. So that's why where we're going to go with uh, today's episode. And he's the owner of Peak Performance Sports PT in Northfield, New Jersey, as well as the head of PT for the Baseball Performance Center, uh, which puts out a ton of high level baseball players, uh, as well as a 220 Baseball Academy. He's FMS, SFMA and on base uh, certified, as well as certified dry needling and IA, uh, IASDM, which is uh, is instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization for, for those of you not aware of that, and also has extensive training in biomechanics. Uh, Ryan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. Looking this is cool. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Ryan and I met, we actually had a couple of pro guys that were going back and forth to his facility for treatment and then coming to see me for some training. So thought he'd be a perfect guy to talk about if I want to geek out about baseball stuff. So um, let's start with that. Like, how did you get landing on on baseball in terms of the PT side? So I was a baseball player growing up from a baseball family. My dad coached, three brothers played, all played in college. So I always had like that love for baseball. Um, my father wore a suit every day to work, right? And I knew I did not want to wear a suit. I want to do something with baseball, something with athletes. I wasn't sure if I was going to go like orthopedic, um, like surgery or where I was going to go. I played, I was playing division three baseball at Albright college. I separated my AC joint and, uh, since 2002. Right. And it was from like being a meathead lifting, taking ibuprofen, throwing, like not doing arm care or anything. Um, and there was really no answer. They just told me like, stop throwing. You know what I mean? I don't even think they sent me to rehab. I, I just had no clear cut answer. And that, that definitely sparked like my, holy, there's, there's more out there. There has to be more out there. And like maybe me benching and doing bicep curls probably, may have created some like imbalances that like I should be training differently at the time. So it was kind of like a perfect evolution of, of like baseball, something that I've always been passionate about and, you know, working out and, and, and with the healthcare mentality too, um, it was just like a, a perfect fit, you know? You know, and unfortunately your story is not unique, right? There's, you can drive, you know, to any school, any program, any team, any organization, and there's, there's, dozens and dozens of kids within each of those that are that are going through your story and the, the the thing that always gets me is like if you would have gotten just a little bit of nudge in another direction like what that potential could have been and what you could have avoided right and and so it's not always this because arm injuries are at an epidemic level right now in baseball sure. and so you know everybody always thinks about tommy john and shoulder reconstruction all these big things but a lot of times it's that little thing and, and i know for myself and i want to get your slant on it is you know, I tell all the, the baseball and softball players I work with, like, you're not one of those sports that that is like football or where you're having, you know, collisions and that kind of thing. You know, you're you're usually going to get a warning sign if something's not right. And most of the times, like you said, you're ignoring the warning sign. You're just taking ibuprofen and I'm going to go out and make my next start and, and deal with it. If we would have caught that warning sign early enough, that little bit of bursitis or, or irritation that, that was somewhere like some, some simple drills or treatment could have cleaned that up right away and you would have been on your way and who knows what would have happened. Right. So uh, talk about like some of those warning signs that you want to tell your athletes to be aware of and like to not ignore because those little things become big things. Sure. So uh, the, the most common sense one would be like medial elbow pain or front shoulder pain. Like that's not a normal response to throwing some posterior shoulder discomfort. I, I'd say, sure. Again, a bit more of the soreness versus pain type of thing. I think one of the biggest, biggest predictors is in our pitchers is they see that below drop and they can't figure out why. So they're seeing something's from just an energy system standpoint, something's off. Right. And, and like you see a lot of times you see that below drop before pain even rears its head. So I, not that you want to obsess over below, but understanding like if you're starting to see a pattern of trend and you have the capability and you're thrown into a clock, I mean, that's, I'm starting to look like something biomechanically is probably moving inefficient. And if the pitching coach isn't seeing something obvious, then it's like screaming. There's something going on um, that I got to take a look at. Or another one is like, this is like just having rapport with athletes. Right. And they'll tell you, like, I can't get into my back leg. 
I used to be able to get into my back leg. I can't get into my back leg. Or my legs used to get sore after I pitched. Now I'm not getting soreness there. Like the, it all kind of paints a picture of like there's probably some movement inefficiency or, or potentially movement inefficiency going on. So let's let's like start delving into um you know what's happening or, or just when they say I'm starting to feel tight and I never felt tight now I feel tight like my, my brain starts going like well, is it protective tension what like what's locked up what's compensating so I think like again multifaceted but like having conversations with your athletes on a regular basis can sometimes be like the biggest you know the biggest thing absolutely and, and you know as much as, as we do, we've learned a lot of assessments along the way on, on both the the fitness and performance side, as well as the rehab side, your best assessment is sometimes it's a good conversation, right? Oh, so, right. Um, um, so, you know, so I want to go a couple different directions. You talk about Velo. I'm going to shelve that and come back to that a little bit, but um, uh, arm injuries, it, you know, they, as I mentioned, they kind of be, became this epidemic level thing. And so what, what's kind of your insight on how it got there? And, and, you know, part two to that is what do you say to the, because I deal with it with the dad, the, the the guy in the stands that says, oh, we didn't have this back in my day. You know, we just threw, we didn't have to think about it. <laughs> right. And, you know, it, it, you have to explain to him like, well, back in your day, they weren't playing 120 games mm-hmm. of baseball a year. They weren't throwing year round and they also didn't throw. They were throwing 75 miles an hour. So, right. you know, that's a different world. But but it is a world that we're dealing with a lot of this and we're dealing with the, unfortunately, younger and younger ages. So, like, what do you see as some of like the, the big rocks that we're missing that's that's leading to this well i think like you hit on from the early ages like the eight nine-year-olds and, and my son i coach a travel ball team at nine nine u and like we played 15 games and they played 10 games of rec there is my competition that are playing 75 80 games in the spray 70 in the spring and then another 30 in the fall at nine years old so that's i mean that's it's not a rocket scientist to say it's way too much baseball right and then they're playing pitcher then they're playing catcher and they're playing on multiple teams so we're not controlling how many throws they're having and their bodies are underdeveloped. So they're throwing like with all arm. Right. So the, the, the amount of games early on and how much baseball is being played is like that culture is like, and I'm in it as a dad and as a physical therapist, like it makes me sick to my stomach. Right. Um, just because it's, 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 it's just, it's way too much of one thing over and over and over again. Right. So I think that would be from the young ages, that would be like obviously the obvious, right. Then when you get into like your high school age, like the, the underpreparedness, the 150 pound kid who's got a really fast arm action, who throws hard. And now like what's his, what's his tissue capacity? What's his strength capacity? Are we managing like how many, this kid's hitting 90 miles an hour at 150. Like how many times is he thrown? Right. So I think that that element is even more so like in that high school age population. And then you take that kid and now he's got a, he's got a, um, He's got a showcase in January. I mean, he really should be just starting to ramp up, but he has to go, you know, sell out to, to in the showcase when he's totally not ready for it, right? Which goes back to the underpreparedness. So there's so many facets, um, you know, it starts with way too much, too young, and then, the, you know, the strive for Velo and the, the schedule, the year-round schedule. It's just like a perfect storm, right? Yeah, and and then there's also, um, you know, when you talk about the, that that developmental component of it and that long term athletic de- athletic development, and um, not understanding that one of the, some of the key ages there's there's like this perfect storm. Some of the key ages for baseball are also some of the key ages where there's a some of the largest swings in physical development in terms of one kid to the next. Like 12-year-old year is kind of like your utopia in, in, in baseball. That's when the Little League World Series is. That's when kids are finally playing their last year on a big field. They're hitting home runs, that kind of stuff. But the the physical maturation from one 12-year-old to the next, you know, being someone who's a dad of two kids who played all the way through uh, up until college and, and who coached and volunteered for, you know, 12 years of youth baseball, you go to Cooperstown, which is like the, the big deal when you're 12 years old and you got some kids shaving and you got other <laughs> kids, you got other kids that, that have these baby faces that are 60 pound twigs. And so, we it so that leads to okay we have a but we have a the, the best rule we have to to curb it is a pitch count right the same kid who's a 200 pound moose who throws 75 miles an hour and the 60 uh, pound kid who can barely reach the plate get the same pitch count right. talk about where pitch counts kind of fit in that whole mix in in your head yeah i mean i think i i, I think at least it's a start but you're like you said there's so many more variables 
involved with pitch count? Like, like you have to think of effort. Like, was there high effort innings? Was it? Um, is the is the kid a, a mover? Is he is he biomechanically moving really well? Like that? I don't know. Like seventy pitches to a kid to Chase Petty who moves by, like biomechanically efficient is a lot different than the, the big Ophi kid who's thrown with all arm, right? Like, so those factors in itself, and then the idea of pitch count of when you're playing on multiple teams, so you're right. Like, it, are those pitch counts being followed? And it, is it okay then when we put them at shortstop and back at center field, right? Like, so it's it's still not cumulative, like taken into consideration of all the other throws, all the other high intent throws. If he's moving well, how, like so, I think it's it's a start, but it's far from what we need, right? And so ultimately, I, I think what I found, at least the onus has to come down on the parents, because as much as the kids are going to communicate, a 12 year old's not telling a grown adult that, yeah. hey, my arm hurts, right? I want to come out, you know, when he's pitching right. against his buddy. So um, it comes down to the parents to communicate that. And if you're too wrapped up in winning that, you know, 12 U free USABL yeah. championship sweatshirt <laughs> and not realizing that, you know, your kid's arms logging all this damage to it, um, you know, that that becomes an issue. Now, speaking of, of, of things that, that are kind of sensitive in that group is um, one of the biggest questions I get when I talk to parents and groups like that is I talk to them about, you know, the importance of recovery. And the first thing they'll mention is ice. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll talk about ice and say, well, you know, it, I know that you see the guys on TV with the big, big ice packs on their arm, but there's a lot of data and research that shows that's maybe not the best thing for you to do. Um, and, and so I, I want to get some of your insight as a, as a, as a therapist on kind of where you would take that conversation with a parent. Exactly what you said. The research is just, is not there. And there's even a potential that it's impeding the natural process. So if we throw, we want to create adaptation and we want the body to recover. So let's use more natural ways to do so. So food, healthy nutrition, food, hydration, sleep, there is some like, like I'm a big blood flow restriction guy. So I think that the concept of using like BFR as a recovery tool is cool, but I don't think it's, it's not um, taking place of like those or, or active recovery and just getting things moving. Um, so yes, yeah, it's just kind of one of those things we did because we did, but if I want tissue, I want the body to kind of inflame, repair, healthily create, um, create changes over time. Like, ice in essence could do more harm than good so let's stop it right and then and then you know the bigger rocks like you mentioned are are the things that that we unfortunately just blow right past we're worried about what's the best arm you know icing sleeve that i can buy on amazon (laughs) when your kid was up till two in the morning playing Fortnite. that's a bigger issue you know um so let's let's talk about um you know one of the, the questions that i brought up is is like what are some of the key differences in like the KPIs, like in, in terms of factors you consider on that long-term athlete continuum, like what are some of the key markers you want to see some of your athletes hit and how that approach changes from middle school to high school to college and above? It kind of with, with what I do, right? Like from even an assessment standpoint, like I, my, my, my assessment from an eight-year-old to a 25-year-old starts the same. You know what I mean? I'm looking at and this is where like, even like from our dialogue of working together, it's like, I'm, I'm looking at it from a, like a general mobility standpoint, shoulder and hips and how the shoulder mobility is dictating rib position and how the hip mobility is dictating pelvis position. And like, that's my starting point. And if there's abnormalities within that, right. If there's, again, we can look at total arc and all that, but we want to see like um, a general 180 total arc and shoulder and hip. Right with some differences based on ERIR, based on dominant arm, right? So like my, my starting point is, is is simplistic in that I'm always looking at mobility shoulder, mobility of hip, understanding if the arc is too far off in in, in either direction, right? Um, and if the if the total arc is off, is is it is it adaptation that's good for them or is it adaptation that's ticking too far off? And now how do we pull it back in, right? So my, my idea, kind of from a biomechanics standpoint, um, if you, you if your shoulder mobility tells us where your uh, rib cage and scat position is, we know if that's not in a great joint position, you're inherently going to be weak in those positions. So if we can fix the mobility through different means, we know joint positions more optimal. We know joints in better position to be strong. We know you're going to be able to access pitching mechanics or throwing positions better. 
Does, does that make sense a little bit? And layers of compensation come through there. So I'm always starting my 25 year old and, I, and I'm cleaning up the basics really quick. You know what I mean? Or, or, or trying to stay on that. We never lose uh, track of the basics, I guess is what I'm saying. Absolutely. But it- then, you know, where you look at what some of the, the drivers could be for where those poor positionings and postures and shapes and r- ranges may come from is very different from the third in the 13 year old versus the, the 25 year old, where there's a lot more soft tissue adaptation, maybe more true mobility issues you're going to see sure. in that developed in that developed athlete versus that 13 year old, you know, who comes in and, and I, I'm sure you get it. I get it. You know, my son's so stiff. He can't move. He needs flexibility. You right. know, I have him stretching every day. And it's like, well, you, you may be doing the worst thing possible right. for this poor kid is that there's a reason why he's tight. He either doesn't have the motor control to go in those positions. Sure. And, and that's that protective tension that you mentioned before is the only thing saving his joints, or maybe he's going through a growth spurt. And right. this is maybe the worst time to actually try to stretch them. Let's leverage that in terms of where they are from a, from a length tension standpoint. And maybe now's the time that we got to start training some speed or other attributes that, that they're going to need athletically. Um, and then, you know, as long as there's not pain, I don't know if we want to necessarily create more range of motion in that 13, 14 year old kid who's going through that growth spurt. Right. No, absolutely. And I think back at, at the end of the day, like on the, on the continuum of, mobility versus stability i, I mean i'm we're going to shoot especially in the younger athletes for stability all stability and motor control all day long is like you said a lot of times you will we'll see more of that protective tension in in your young kids that are growing and they're still figuring out their bodies right yeah and then then you know and then the, the other thing and i don't know if you've seen this is the big underserved group that i see out there uh because so much of what we do is so mobility biased and especially a lot of, you know, the, the latest crazes of whatever it is in our industry is so mobility biased that there's an underserved population of kids that are uh, somewhat hypermobile and mm-hmm. that they, that may be the, again, the worst thing for them. And then where that leads back into baseball is where I've seen where the, the use of weighted balls, that hypermobile kid is a, is, is a not a good fit for that. Right. Cause one of the ways they work is creating more laxity. So kind of talk right. about that decision-making process of who's the right candidate to even consider that type of thing. From a weighted ball standpoint, like I think you have to be skeletally mature, right? Like you have to be able to be, you have to have a baseline strength. You have to, gross plate should be closed before we're loading things up. You better look at their external rotation. And if you're putting a weighted ball on a kid that has 140 degrees of external rotation to, to think that you're doing something of benefit, that's, that is like, you know, it's like malpractice. So I think, again, going back to shoulder shoulder arc and understanding a healthy arc versus an unhealthy arc helps you determine that. And then also look at, you know, every other factor from their strength and their age, right? As far as it's going to be one of the last tools that you put in the toolbox as far as I'm concerned in, in, in many ways, you know? Well, unfortunately, that's that's thrown in with a lot of other things and synonymous where it's really not with a lot of other things. When when people hear about and talk about arm care, oh, I have an arm care program. That means I have a band. I have a weighted ball. Right. And and but not all arm care is the same same and not a a lot of your arm care has nothing to do with your arm. Correct. So so tell me, like, if you had to define arm care to uh, a coach, a parent, a, a kid, tell me what that means in your definition, right? I think you nailed it. it. You have to look at the kinetic chain, right? Throwing's not done in isolation of the arm. So you have to understand the impact of the back leg, its effect, its energy transfer up through the pelvis, up through T, up through the rib cage, T spine, and the shoulders, the last shoulder and arms, the last thing to kind of withstand the stress or let go of the stress. So it's fun, like and I, going back to kind of what I was touching on, when they come in for an arm care exam, almost the first thing I do is have them take their shoes off, look at their feet, uh, and then I and then I have them squat. So I'm looking at just like their their movement patterns from that standpoint. Because the idea is again, a lot of times what shows up in the arm is inefficient or imbalances that show up in the arms is inefficient down the chain, right? So then we can start tying together. Well, his lot, you know, his lack of internal rotation maybe stemming from his inability to get over his front leg because he's left hip IR limitations, etc. So usually. I, um, I think starting my exam by not looking at an arm and then kind of teaching as I go is like kind of how I get buy-in. But I can tell you like four years ago, that was very difficult to do. Now people are starting to like get more on track with that, I, I believe, right? Yeah. And and I think, you know, kind of jumping ahead from the and away from the younger athletes is I think another mistake that gets made is 
with the older athletes, the ones especially who perform really well at a high level, we make this assumption that they have really good body awareness right. and that they really understand positionings and, and control right. of, of like their pelvis. And, you know, I know you, you've done the on-base course. So like get somebody just in an athletic stance and tell them, you know, tuck your yeah. pelvis under, tilt your <laughs> pelvis forward. And you see some of the, the craziest stuff you'd yeah. imagine. So like beginning that process of education without assuming that they mm-hmm. have it, cause they can throw with a, you know, they can throw with a lot of velocity and a lot of, and, and a lot of, uh, success, but tell me how you can take that advanced athlete, that, that kid who's at that level where they're getting, you know, looks from pro teams or at the professional level. And you have to pull them back to the fundamentals to say, you don't even know how to rotate your pelvis or control your pelvis. Right. I I think you, you kind of nailed it is putting them in those positions and these guys who are freaks that roll out of bed and throw a hundred and showing them how bad they are at it. And then explaining like where it has in the pitching process and how this, and then I always go back like, I got to make a sales pitch, man. So my sales pitch is like, I can add, we might be able to add velocity. Like I always go that like to me, like velocity and health are go, Hey, if we're efficient, we're, we're going to have less injury risk. We're going to throw harder. So these are areas that like are untapped potential for you. Like again, from a, from a standpoint like that. And if we even get these working better, who knows what else, right. Let alone keep you on the field, but maybe we, we pick up some more. Okay. Now, so tell me how, their actual throwing mechanics fixed into that, into that suit. So, so same idea. When I, again, kind of talking about the team, I, I, I work with like some really good pitching coaches. So I have my, my general base of like how we want to see them move efficiently. And then I send video all the time back to my coaches, you know what I mean? And vice versa. And there's a dialogue from that standpoint of like, what are like, Book, I don't like his pec stretch. Like, is there something blocking him from this position? But he cannot get into a pec stretch. So I think that team approach of like my understanding of pitching from what I do, but punting a lot, and and and, and that that dialogue with the coach, and then me doing my assessment and like what are what pieces are we putting together to get there? If that makes sense, because it, it, it's hard to know everything, right? I'm not a I'm a, I'm a, I'm a PT. I'm not a strength and conditioning coach. I'm not a pitching coach. I, I have my, my strong base and kind of a strong base in both worlds, but a team approach of, of that is, I think, crucial. And I don't think it's, I'm blessed to have that, right? I'm blessed to have a ton of arms. I'm blessed to have some really good pitching coaches. I'm blessed to have guys to be able to, to send to you. But I think that's the, that's important. And, and, and also the, yes, the, the, the more efficient they move, the, the, the better the kinematic chain, you know, the, the less strain on their arm. You know, we had uh, uh, Greg Rose on the uh, podcast last week, and he talked about the importance. He kept talking about efficiency, but he said you have to delineate between efficiency and style, right? Because everybody tries to say, well, Greg Maddox is the, is the you know, kind of the prototype of what we want to have. So let's make everybody try to look like Greg Maddox. Right. So an, you know, as a swing, he used the example of Aaron Judge. Well, why don't we make everybody try to swing like Aaron Judge? Because he's having one of the right. greatest offensive seasons ever, but not understanding that not everybody can do that. Right. 100%. And then even if you evaluate a swing like judges, I know when I did, you know, my on base course that, you know, we looked at a swing there's, there's probably, you know, some pretty decent flaws from an efficiency standpoint, but six, seven, two seventy makes up for a lot of those flaws. Sure. Don't they? Right. So, so let's talk about that where the overpowered versus underpowered athlete. And when you talked about like, from my end, like what some of my KPIs are like, when are you strong enough? When are you powerful enough? Um, to say, okay, adding another five pounds on the bar isn't going to make the difference. So like getting that same weight to maybe move faster may make the difference. Or maybe your biggest issue is you're just, you're, you're just too much of a wet noodle. You just need to be stronger. So being able to have a system to, to put in boxes is, is kind of what I look at. So what are some of the things that like someone gets sent to you and, it's, and you realize that this may be, like you said, a capacity issue. So how do you kind of filter that out? Well, I think, Again, kind of where mine usually when somebody gets sent to me, it's from a hitting or pitching coach, and it's like, Book, he's not getting into his back leg. Can you f- help him get into his back leg? He used to get into his back leg. This is his swing now. We can't figure it out. Like that's that's like the world I kind of live in. At which then I'm breaking down his pelvis, hip, uh, back foot, and seeing like what what restrictions bring him, and then how can we address that? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And same with they said the, the common one we see is you know, no matter what we do, he's not getting into a good pec stretch. What's blocking him? Is, is it his ability to rotate his ribs? Is it a compressed anterior rib cage? Um, is it a tight pec? Is it 
he's weak as heck in horizontal abduction and retraction and he can't sustain it. So that's my world is like, I, I guess I get to be kind of really, um, uh, I, I get, like they give me a, they give me a head start on what they're not seeing. And then how can I break that down and, and hopefully facilitate a change? Now, the, the blessing is that you actually have coaches who are open to that, right? The challenge is when you have coaches who see that and they see it, at, as you said, in a simplistic way, but they see it too simplistically and do that, mm-hmm. what I call this for that, that approach. So that kid can't get into layback. So what do they do? They automatically say, you know, let's get you into this big old pec stretch. I'm going to crank your arm behind your body right. so I can get it back there. Not right. realizing that that's that part might have already been loose. That, that, that maybe it's your T spine that's not rotating. Maybe it's something 100%. else that says it's causing that. Now they created another problem. One hundred percent. And I think that's the that's the beauty of like having trust with your coaches, where they're gonna you they lack ER. We're not just stretching in the ER. We're gonna find the reason of why their layback's there, right? And that's that's kind of what I take pride in doing and, and figuring out that. But that's scary. And that's you see it, man. You see it on Instagram all the time. People cranking. They probably have 140 degrees of ER, but they don't like their layback, and they're cranking a. a literally, seen a guy holding a dumbbell with 15 pounds, just stretching his anterior capsule, and like trying to justify this. You know what I mean? And I'm like, ah. Well, they, it's and then the bigger problem is thinking that applies to everybody, right. right? And so that's where you know one of the things I always tell athletes when I'm doing an assessment is that right now you're writing your program for me. Like right. you came and when I first met you, I have no idea what you need. You know, what would you do with me as a baseball player? I want to throw harder, I want to hit harder. I tell them, honestly, I have no idea. In an hour, I will, right? And then over the next hour, you're going to write your program for me. I'll know which things you do need, which things you don't need. So tell me about if I'm walking through the the, the day one with you, what that assessment process kind of looks like from a, uh, like you mentioned, from the global standpoint of let's look at things like squatting and lunging and those things from a, mm-hmm. from a, uh, a regional standpoint of, like you mentioned, the thorax and the, and the interaction with the scap, and then all the way down to the, the local level with specific, maybe goniometric assessments on, on joints. Yeah. So usually like I'll start at pelvis, right? I look at, I'll see, I have them squat and do a toe touch just to see how they're moving. If they're wide ISA, narrow ISA, if they look compressed posteriorly, are they able to pinch their hips? Then I'm laying down, look, get a quick hip mobility assessment. So now I have an idea of where their pelvic position is. Then I'll stand them back up, their shirt's off, and I'm starting to go into like my orthopedic exam, looking at their shoulder flexion mobility, their ER, IR. We're getting strength measures to have a baseline. Um, then I'll break them down into more of like the on-base use stuff where we'll start looking at like knee, tibial, internal rotation, um, foot mobility. So we're just kind of taking a check mark approach down. Then, you know, and then all the way up back at the C-spine. So then we have a basically, at that point, I have a problem list and like, where's my starting point? I tend to start again from like the training, like I'm into with the biomechanics, with the pelvis and ribs. I start on right identifying if there's a alignment issue in the pelvis that's affecting rib cage and shoulder. Once I start cleaning up there, then I start attacking lower half or upper half, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Now, something you just kind of blew by that that is is something that that I I'm personally fascinated by, and I and you don't hear a lot of people talk about it. I actually just messaged uh, with a guy on on Twitter about it because he was talking about it, and I, I know the only person I really heard, heard talking about it publicly a whole bunch is Bill Hartman, and that's the infrasternal angle and the impact mm-hmm. that they can have on what your approach would be, not only your treatment but as far as your training. So, tell so me this- a little bit about how you're looking at, at that and what that impacts in your decision making. So this is like the rabbit hole I've been going down the last two years of the, the Bill Hartman stuff, Connor Harris, Alex Effort, because it like, I, you know, working with baseball players enough, you see patterns, but like, you're, I don't, I'm not really understanding why the why. So Hartman mm-hmm. went into like just how rib cage angle, a wide ISA versus narrow ISA, your, your, your leaner builds tend to rotate really well and their external rotation bias and they rotate really well, but they don't generate force production as well as your wider eyes say. And I don't know all the ins and outs. Hartman is like the smartest dude alive. And sometimes I listen to him and I rewind it and I'm like, what? Oh, um, good. I'm not the only one. <laughs> so, but there's, there. I think getting back to like, that's where like my, my static rate, like my static posture and my range of motion, even though it sounds so simplistic and it's so much probably simpler than how I looked at things eight years ago understanding the relationship of rib cage position and pelvis position and our hip mobility and shoulder mobility are telling us what's going on here is a great starting point that I feel like is missed 
a lot. And then when it comes into like force production, it, and and there's there's two trains of thought on this. And this is where like if you have a narrow ISA, they 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 tend to rotate really really well, really efficiently. They're that whippy. They're again the guys I work with, Chase Petty, Mike Adams. They 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 fly downhill. They're not necessarily that big. They usually can dunk a basketball, super athletic. And then your wide ISA, who's like more of the big, um, bigger guy that goes, you know, mass equals gas type of guy, doesn't rotate as well, but gets on top of the ball and generates force that way. So I think there's there's value in like how would I again, and I'm not a I'm not a CSCS, so I, I I like tap into this stuff, but I don't I don't have it gone down the whole rabbit hole with it. And 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 there's two trains of thought. Would you change the way you train a narrow ISA? He already wrote really fast do we make him rotate even faster because that's his natural capacity where do we get him bigger to kind of look more like a wide isa and try to get a wide isa and work more like a narrow isa and, and i've heard like two schools of thought on that right like the magic power is chase's narrow isa and his ability to twist so do we just keep feeding that right or do we do we put put more mass on him i just think it's an inter- interesting concept and, and i'm still i'm still going down that of what's the best what's the best route but yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting because what I find is where I see it on on my performance testing. So like we'll do, I'll put them through the um, the uh, FCS, which is from Functional Movement Systems, where we're going to look at a series of jumps. We'll look at we'll we'll dissect the broad jump. We'll look at it um, in a double leg broad jump, single leg broad jump. Do they produce more off of one side versus the other? Hands on hips broad jump. Do they how much do they connect their upper and lower body together? double jump and triple jump to see what kind of elasticity they have. And then I'll, I'll put that together with a TPI power testing where it's a series of, of, of not only looking at lower body power with your jumps, either vertical or broad jump, but you're also looking at some med ball throws where you do a, a line a med ball throw, like a sit up and throw, you'll do a, yeah. a seated chest throw and a, um, and a shot put throw. And what you'll see is you'll see that, that, um, the, the really good spinners, like you're talking about those whippy kids, they they'll, they'll shot, put that thing uh, a mile, they'll throw it 40, 45 feet or plus, but then they almost, it almost, almost matches up where like what you're saying, their broad jumps will be lacking. Mm-hmm. And then you'll have the opposite where you have that, that the kid who's a little bit wider frame, who's a little bit huskier kid, who's going to get the bigger broad jump, but doesn't yeah. spin as smooth. <laughs> and so, yeah, so now you got to figure out. So you start saying to that kid who's, who's got the big broad jump, if I can get you get a little more whippier, we might, we might have something here and you'd get the really whippy kid. If I can give you a little more juice in the sagittal plane, we might have something here, sure. but how do you do that without giving away what made them great? Yeah, 100%. Right? And you got to. The- how do you manage that, that, that allotment of volume and time is kind of the art of, of what we do. Mm-hmm. And right. And so that's where the, the, I think the assessment process and not guessing is really what, what drives that is to say, like, I want to go back and check that and say as much as, Hey, it's awesome. We added six inches, your broad jump. But if it was at the cost of taking a foot off your rotational throw, right. then I might've, you know, I'm trying to make you into mm-hmm. something that you're not. Sure. And then it comes back in, again in, in, in my world a little bit is is velo climbing and, and do they feel good right like because we want to like the ultimate key kpi right are they healthy and is, is are, are they accomplishing what they want to in sport right so now let's talk about the the aspect of returning to play because mm-hmm. when you look at it from a from the youth all the way up to the professional level, obviously there's more mechanisms in place the higher up you go and the higher the stakes are. But unfortunately in a lot of settings it's kind of like left to, well, how does it feel? And, you know, you've given a 17 year old, the options, how does it feel? He's (laughs) going out and he's going to throw whether that thing's hanging, hanging off his body. So let's talk about like what a return to play process looks like in terms of when you're going to give the green light. And, and it's, it's interesting that you're seeing team approaches where people like myself and you can work together and the doctor's letting you make that decision. Sometimes they're saying to me, look, you see him, you know, on the field, the most you, tell me when he's ready to go back and play. So right. tell me kind of what some of those markers are and what that process looks like. I think the first is just understanding what was the injury or pathology, or is it an injury or is, is there true pathology there? And, or is, is it inflammation or are you right? Like, what are we dealing with pain versus so we have to ha- have a general concept of like tissue healing times. And then also the structure, right? Like a ligament, UCL, I'm going to be more cautious than, some posterior shoulder impingement potentially, right? So mm-hmm. first thing is we want to have a general idea of 
what we think the tissue healing times are. Then if we have to modify a little bit to calm that down, go for it. Then as far as like return is, I'm going to see full range of motion, um, full strength as far as one-to-one ratios and rotator cuff. Um, you know, I used the, we, I used the, the, the manual muscle tester, the objective manual muscle tester. So we have, so we can compare sides and make sure that we're, our lower trap serratus and everything is all looking good. Um, and then as far as return to throwing, depending how long they shut down, a general rule of thumb, if you've, if you have not been able to throw because of pain for six weeks, we are going to put you on a minimum of a six week throwing program to ramp up the load and volume minimum. So that's like just a general rule of like, that I always start with. Like if you should have for eight weeks, you're not back on the mountain in four weeks. That's asking for trouble. And there's still orthopedics that like same thing, like you said, we'll shut them down for four and they won't even send the therapy. And then they say, just see how it feels. Right. So I think you have to, your norms, get range of motion, get strength. A lot. Um, if, you, if you don't have a baseline, why balance and things like that is tricky to, to, I think like, I don't necessarily use, I don't, I don't go that far. I'm not saying it's wrong, but if, if I, if the full range of motion, full strength, then I look at how long they're shut down and ramp about at least one with, with that, with the same concept of that. And then it's also relative to what they're getting back to just because yeah. you have those markers doesn't mean you're ready to go out and throw, throw 110 uh, on, a, on a Friday. Right. So it made that there's this gradual easing back in. Yeah, that's um, that. No, go ahead. No, I think and that's the strategic of like developing an individualized throwing program with appropriate ramp up, then the flats, then the, right. And that can be tricky. I mean, that's, that's a, that's an art in itself. A hundred percent. Now um, talking about that communication line and, and sometimes that lack of trust. So I, I just had a situation. It wasn't a, a baseball guy, but it was a, a, a football guy that I had who um, had a subluxated shoulder making a tackle on a kickoff. And doctor said, you're shut down. Don't do any upper body whatsoever. And he said, well, you know, you know, can I do some, some, you know, just some basic drills to try to build back my strength. And he said, you know, no, absolutely not. And, you know, don't trust your trainer and, you know, that yes. kind of deal. And it's like, well, he, he basically said, you're going to get surgery and then you're going to be down for six months. And then until right. that surgery, just don't do anything. Right. Which is right. In, in a way, almost, I, I, I understand it because I see what's out there and being someone who's been going out and doing continuing ed for trainers for, for 15 years, I get it where the lack of trust comes from, but that lack of trust also is going to have that kid come out much worse in terms of his results on the other side. So in terms of where we, where we have lost that trust and how, how do we regain that with someone like yourself in the medical community as strength and conditioning coaches, as trainers, how do we build that trust? First of all, what are we screwing up? Like when you cringe and you say, oh shit, when you know you hear an athlete come in and tell you their, their story of, oh, my, my trainer had me doing this, hanging a 15 pound dumbbell, whatever crazy right. story. What, what are, tell me what are those things we're getting wrong that really make you cringe? And then what are the things we can do to build trust with someone like yourself? I think the, like the biggest thing is ask for my cell phone, right? Like I have all my, like my, my strength and conditioning guys, my physicians, I've got it on like a text message basis with like, just to like, let's talk. Cause I don't know everything. And like, let's brainstorm and maybe I'm not thinking everything. So I think like the, the actual making the phone call or sending a text message, just like me and you have, right. And like now we've developed an affinity and now there's a, a baseline trust and right. We see. So I think that is just, that's like, again, that should be like a minimum. Um, and as far as I think considering tissue healing times and risk reward, Right. And I, and I fall into it sometimes even PT where I'm, I'm maybe I'm getting it a little, maybe too aggressive, but it's, it's that they don't really need it at this point. Right. So, I mean, that's something that that's, that's an art of working with athletes for a while and understanding big picture versus small picture. But I, but I just think that the dialogue should be, it shouldn't be felt as an inconvenience. It shouldn't be felt. It should be like a, almost a, a necessity. Like let's talk like, right. Like let's five minutes, talk about this patient. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it was important. And I know from, and this is, that's exactly how you and I met. We, we, we uh, connected through a text and then a conversation. And I think it's all important, also important to find out like, all right, what are you covering? So I yes. don't do that again. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're already covering, cause I've seen that happen where we've had, had guys that come in and I'm assuming based on what's going on that um, I'm going to need to do, you know, 
rotator cuff strengthening or, or any of those types of things. And then I found out, well, this guy just did an hour of it at his right. PT. Right. Yes, and so if I go and do it again, we're now we're actually making him worse. And so <laughs> having that checklist of, all right, who's got what here, who's, how do we stay? Not only do we stay in our lanes, but also we make sure we don't do, not miss anything and we don't double up on the same things. A, a thousand percent. And I can, same thing that's happened to me more times than I can count. Yeah. I mean, cause unfortunately, you know, actually one of the guys that we work together on, he, he had gone to another PT prior to seeing you and literally that's all they did because they, they just kind of saw, Hey, this, they don't work with a lot of baseball guys. That's the other thing. I think it's important on, on my side when I'm referring to someone, there's a, there's something unique about a, a, a clinician who knows how to work with a throwing athlete is a lot different than the old lady with the, the, the frozen shoulder. Right. Sure. And so I want to know from my end on the trust side that this, do, do they work with throwers? Cause if not, you get what happened to, to this guy where he just went in because he was a, a pro pitcher. They automatically assumed I'm just going to do every rotator cuff right. exercise that I know. <laughs> and I'm going to do that. And then I'm, I, I went on Google and I looked up the throwers 10 and we're going to do right. all those on top of it. And it's like, that's not what his problem is. And that's yeah. not what he needs. And right. so um, I think have that, that team approach of, of having it, now talk about teams. Like, so how does that fit in when you have to relate back and forth with the team, whether it's at the high school, college, pro level, next, since you're seeing them maybe in the off season, how that conversation has, it gets done on your end. Uh, if there, if there's not much dialogue with a coach, first, unless, there, unless I get parents consent, right? Cause a lot of times I'm dealing with under, like 16 year old, 17 year old kids. So the dialogue is between me and the, me and the, player and then the player to the coach just from a HIPAA standpoint right like as a, as a physical therapist with that said I have it like locally I have a, a very good relationship with the mainland coach Holy Spirit coach like a lot of the local high schools so if there's ever issues like it, it's just a, it's, a, it's a matter of me talking to a parent and saying look I'm gonna call coach about what's going on so um in, in my area it, I guess it's a small area so it's, it's probably easier than in some areas um, where I kind of have, a, I have a feel, um, but that, yeah, that gets tricky because you got to watch. You can't, you can't, a, a player might not want you to like tell a coach something because he's, he thinks it's going to hurt playing time. And real, the reality is HIPAA wise, I can't tell him. So then I have to relay that to the parent to hope that the parent tells him. And in the meantime, I'm just like my fingers crossed. And I've had patients that I've, and I've, I brought, I'll never forget. This was about a year and a half ago. Thoracic outlet symptoms. I shut her down. Go see the ortho. Boom, she goes. She pitches the next day, and this was like the second time they did this to me. I I had them leave my office. I said, I'm not. You, if you're not listening to anything I'm saying, like just find somewhere else, right? So again, tough conversations at times. Uh, as a healthcare, I have to deal with the. I have to go through parents first, um, and then it's like anything is building trust that they know I'm not just shutting everybody down every time somebody feels pain. That's another scare. Like they come to the therapist, I'm just going to shut them. Like they. I'm known in the area that I'm not going to be doing that unless I think it's I identify a red flag, right? That's the scary part of going to like a clinician that doesn't do throwers. Every acre of pain, they're going to shut them down for six weeks. And that's probably the worst thing you can do, right? I get the same thing with my athletes where they don't want to go to their athletic trainer because they don't, because mm -hmm. they're afraid if you have an, uh, an overly uh, cautious athletic trainer who doesn't really understand a throwing arm, that's going to just shut sure. me down. And and I would, I really just need to say, maybe I just need some soft tissue work and maybe I just sure. need to, to, to get some mobilization or whatever, whatever, have you, but all right. So you brought up the, the other, the other side of this coin is, is softball. All right. We, mm -hmm. we assume that there's the, you know, uh, no arm injuries in softball because it's a less stressful um, throwing motion. Sure. But what I've seen, and, and I want to get your input on this is the problem with softball is, is that your whole team can ride on one pitcher. And if you yeah. have an elite level pitcher and I've gotten to work with some really good ones, um, is that you are, and I've had to have talking about tough conversations. I've had to have the conversation with them and their parents to say, you are your coach's shiny toy. Right. right. Sometimes those girls come around <laughs> once every 10 years for this coach. And it's like, holy shit, I got this division one pitcher on my team. And all I have to do is put her on the mound and put her in the circle every single game. And, right. she, and nobody touches her. But you have situations like I had one, one girl in particular, she was like player of the year. And, um, but she was pitching in a, uh, it was a, uh, like a, fundraiser type tournament early in the year. Like it was probably March preseason type of thing. 
And, uh, you know, it was a doubleheader and, and they were playing another team and the, and the coach comes over to their coach and says, oh, I thought we were going to see so-and-so in this game. We really wanted to face her. And she says, oh, okay. And gets her up because she's the shiny toy. She's been sitting in 40 degree, you know, misting rain for, for three hours. And now we're going to get her up cold and make her throw just to kind of show off our, our toy. Right. I think that's something that that's a conversation with these girls who are the really good pitchers because they get leaned on really hard. Sure. And we, I've seen actually a couple this year, stress fractures, like from the excessive extension. So even if they're not having an arm issue, I've had to send two out for CAT scans. One actually had one. And they're like, that could lead to a lot bigger issues than the shoulder and um, the shoulder elbow issue in a thrower. Like you'd be shut down. It could be your career ending if you just keep letting that thing go and go and go. Right. So that that's just a, a pattern I, I tend to see more of with the softball players is like spine issues. I've seen a cervical stress fracture within the last two months and a lumbar stress fracture. Yeah, have you also seen, because I've also had this as well with some of the, especially the ones who get worn, you know, who are kind of the workhorses that worn down, stress fractures in, in the in the lower limb, um, where I've had a couple girls who had stress fractures in the lower half because that landing and snapping on that leg, and, and they don't always get the greatest mounds uh, right. with softball. Um, so I don't know if you've seen the, some of the lower body pathologies that they've had. I believe it, but I haven't seen it yet, but I'm sure it makes sense. You know what I mean? I've had I all too many times because of so much, even more so than uh, than with baseball pitchers, more so when they're landing on that front leg because they're jumping into it and, you know, they don't take care of the mound. And and if it's sure. they, they hit a hole and they roll on it, it you know, it gets ugly. Um, yeah. And so uh, that's in terms of softball. And then the other thing in, in you know, I, I want to get your input on it is I think one of the problems also is with softball, with arm injuries is that unfortunately we don't teach girls how just how to throw properly. Right. right? Just in terms of you, if you watch them warm up and have a catch, it's right. like all out in front. And it's yeah. like, like no one has taken the time to really, and I don't know if it's just, they don't have the, the level of coaches um, or they're just not taking the time or consideration for it, but just the mechanics of actually being able to throw a ball and not pitching. I'm talking about just like having a catch. Sure. No, I, I hundred percent believe it. hundred percent see it. I just had a female, a female division one catcher that had, and a lot of times they tend to be on the continuum of hypermobile, right. Anterior mm -hmm. laxity in their shoulder. So a, a catcher that threw hard, but seeing um, again, kind of mechanics were not great. Super lax, got away with it for a while, had a fast arm speed. They do an exploratory procedure because she was having pain. They just tighten up her capsule because they don't know what else to do, right? But really, it comes back to she didn't throw right. She opened up and she just would, you know, stress her bicep tendon over and over again, right? So a hundred percent, like that's again culturally something that probably needs to be addressed and talked about more. Uh, well, I think catch play in general, I think is is incredibly underappreciated. So how much does that come into play, like? where you can just kind of watch some kids you got nine-year-olds right you watch mm -hmm. the kids who can who play catch and who can't and like you said that that the kid is i'm not so much looking for that kid who throws it the hardest but who's the best at playing catch who gets right? in positions who can get in positions naturally and repeat it right you can almost pick it you can almost pick an all-star team by catch play and you can tell uh at that age right and i believe i think it was tom house that said we pitch too much now but we don't catch enough I think. And that was like a powerful thing because we weren't like having a catch with intent with good mechanics. Like it's, it's a, it's a motor control exercise that we need to be doing over and over again, not just like, you know, lobbing it back and forth. And, and I just thought that was like a powerful line. Like we, we need to actually in some ways throw more, but not pitch as much, right. To throw more and throw well, as far as building arm capacity. Right. And, uh, but no, I a hundred percent agree. With everything and, you're saying, and unfortunately, and a, a great pitching coach that I that I refer to up here all the time, you know, talks about not only the the healing power of throwing and like you're talking about the play, you know, have catch more and pitch less, but also how disregarded it is. Like you, you're a coach. I, I coach at the youth level. Mm -hmm. What is most of the time warm ups? It's it's hey, go down the line and catch while I'm on my cell phone or I'm writing up the lineup, <laughs> and it's just ball sailing all over the place, oh, yeah. and there's no there's no real like you said intent or or really um quality control of that catch yeah. and so um if i'm that parent 
right? I'm that parent and, and we all deal with delusional parents. I'm that parent and says, okay, I want my son to be the next Chase Petty, whatever. Uh, and I know you do work with him. What, what's the first steps I need to do? You're saying, you're asking me like, as a parent, how do you make them the next Chase Petty type of thing? Like what? What's yeah. The, yeah, what's I, the next step to do? I would say keep them, and this is a, like a big thing where at a young age, keep it fun, make do athletic throws with them. Don't take them to a pitching coach at nine to create bad habits. Let them learn to throw from the chase. They had a pitching coach, but yeah, like our best throwers didn't get pitching coaches till older. They were good athletes. They were good movers. They played shortstop. They threw from different positions. They threw footballs. They threw from backhands. So I would say instead of like, you know, again, mechanics, maybe a, some subtle hints, but like our mechanics working on everything and overthinking and driving their back leg, keep it fun, keep them athletic, make them move a lot and make them, make them get really good in different positions of throwing the ball. That, that is like a very strong, like foundational belief that I have at the young age. Yeah. Well, first you should probably pick the right parents, right? <laughs> that, that helps, right? Your DNA does help. Um, and then, you know, that's it. You know, I'll go back again. Greg Rose is on the show last week and you're saying the same thing. He said, if I had to pick the, the next master's champion and you give me two kids, you give me the 12 year old, you know, junior golf champion, or you give me the 12 year old, you know, world champion in the decathlon, I'm taking the athlete. He goes, I can oh, give, me, give it to a golfer. I all can't, day. I don't know if I can make the 12 year old golfer into an athlete at that's that point. So, um, you know, so it's a, it's a very unique continuum and it's a very unique sport with baseball. That's really kind of not like any other in terms of the preparation for it. So, um, that's why I get fascinated. We can go on all day and get down rabbit holes with this stuff. So I really appreciate you coming on. And, um, if, if people want to find out more about you and what you do, what's the best place to, to track you down, Ryan? Uh, but the peak, um, peak performance Instagram page is really where I got most of my content and I do most, I schedule and do everything from, so. Check it out, right. Peak Performance Sports PT. Yeah, no, he put some great stuff on there as far as just learning some some fundamental things that we overlook. And, you know, we always get caught in clicking on the on the 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 cool crazy stuff of of the, you know, the the LEDs popping up when you're running a million miles an hour and throwing a, a weighted ball to a net. But <laughs> sometimes the the one that's the, the more impactful one is is when you're teaching somebody how to just do segmental rolling. Um sure. And you're doing that with some of the, you know, the best place, best pitchers in the area. And they can see that, you know, there's more to it than just running guns and, uh, and, and doing all the, the cool Instagram stuff. But again, greatly appreciate your time. Hopefully uh, we'll be talking back and forth with some more guys in the future, but once again, thank you everybody for listening. This has been the principles of performance podcast. Thanks.